Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. If God is so good, why does he allow evil and suffering? And if God is so powerful, why doesn't he do anything to stop it? On Monday, May 24th, 1999, Amtrak's 10-car train, the Twilight Shoreliner, train number 67, departed from Boston on its way for Newport News, Virginia at 8 p.m. And it rode for a couple hours and was delayed for two hours because of weather. And then finally, once the weather let up, it left Providence and made its way to Connecticut. And as it traveled along the tracks at 71 miles an hour with 209 people on board, at 2.20 a.m., the 10-car Twilight Shoreliner ran over five people who were walking on the tracks near the North Benson Road overpass in Fairfield, Connecticut. And those five people were Jose Toledo, Julia Toledo, and their three young boys, suddenly removed from this earth in the middle of the night. A writer for Harper's Magazine heard about this tragedy. His name's Mark Sluka, and he writes about this tragedy in Harper's Magazine in June of 2000. After he- and after hearing the details of this tragedy, he says this. He says, the train's steel snout with its red, white, and blue stripes, was splashed with blood. Scattered over a wide area were the children's shoes, their torn backpack, a bloody Bible, and the Sesame Street dolls the older older boys had packed for the journey. No number of facts would, would suffice. The what was not enough. We wanted a why. Better still, a who. In other words, he he didn't just want to know what happened. He knew the details of what happened. But Mark Sluka needed to know. And for those of us who would hear hear this tragedy or tragedies like this, we don't just need to know what happened. We want to know why it happened. Or we want to know who's to blame. Was it the negligence on the part of the conductor? Was it the, was it the train company? Was it the, the, the signal man who didn't you know, do the right thing? Was it the parents? Why are they walking on train tracks at night? You know, were, they, were they bad parents? What was their situation? What was the reason? But after Sluka, after months and months of investigation and inquiry, couldn't find any answers, and he ends his article in Harper's Magazine, and he says, after all was considered, no reasons could be found, and all that was left was blood on the tracks. If God is so good, why does he allow suffering? And if God is so powerful, why doesn't he do anything to stop it? And in the end, what Sluka concluded was that in the face of unexplained suffering, it must be Because either God isn't there or because God is there but doesn't care. Perhaps you know someone who rejects the idea of God for this very reason. Perhaps you yourself 
are struggling with this question right now. It's the question of suffering. It's the question of evil. It's the question of injustice. That as you look out at our world, and even as you look out within your life, you wonder and you see a lot of things that aren't the way that they should be, and you, and you keep going, I cannot find a reason for this. And then your conclusion is, well, therefore, there must not be a reason for this. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've been walking through a variety of things that, that the primary voice, we said at the very beginning, there's two voices, there's the narrator, and then there's the teacher, and the teacher speaks for 95% of the book, and what we've been seeing is the teacher walking through a variety of subjects as he has explored and experienced many things and has found those things as he's explored them and experienced them in and of themselves, he has found them to be meaningless, and it's at this point as we get to chapter six and a little bit of chapter eight that force us to ask the question, the same question that Mark Sluka was asking 23 years ago. Where is God in the midst of suffering? Where is God in the midst of evil? Where is God in the midst of injustice? Because it often isn't the case that we have, that we necessarily have a problem with evil and suffering. That, that isn't a precise enough explanation of the tension that we feel. It's actually unexplained suffering. It's unexplained evil that we have the hardest time with because if we hear of someone who was run over by a truck, we can at least somehow reconcile that in our mind if we know that the reason they were run over was because they were pushing a child out of the way, right? It's like, oh, that's a, that's a terrible tragedy, but at least there was a reason for it. At least, at least they died doing something noble and good, or even when we hear of evil in our world, we want to be able to explain why that evil exists or why that, or why that person did what they did. We want to be able to look at, you know, was it their upbringing? Were they, you know, was it their environment? Were they not hugged enough as a, as a kid? Were they bullied? Or perhaps it was their family situation, their, their, their environment, the, the, you know, the, the nature, nurture kind of interplay there. Did they have mental health issues? We want to know why even Evil people do evil things. And if we can somehow figure out the, the, the inputs that contributed to them becoming the kind of person that would do those kinds of things, it doesn't make what they did good, but it at least helps us understand why. But when we can't see the reasons and when, when we can't find explanations, we often don't know what to do. Because we are a people who so badly want answers. We want to be able to Google it, don't we? I don't know something, just Google it. We'll find out right away. And when we can't find an obvious explanation for the evil, for the injustice, for the suffering in this world or in our life, it inevitably creates within us a deep frustration with the apparent randomness of life, with the apparent futility of life. Now, my guess is, is that perhaps some of you feel this tremendous frustration and futility in, in unexplained suffering this morning. But my guess is, is that many of us don't. And, but the reason why many of us actually don't sense this feeling of frustration with the apparent randomness in our world, it isn't because it doesn't exist. It's simply because we're so consumed with our own lives, with the details of what we're doing and how we're going to do it, 
that we often miss the forest for the trees. We, get, we, we live our lives thinking so much about what's going on and how it's going to happen that we actually don't step back and consider the broader picture. I'll give you an example. So I, in college, I worked for a remodeling company and I'll never forget this one job I was at. It was just me and this other guy were in this basement. The basement had flooded. And so his job was to take a circular saw and to cut halfway up the drywall all the way around the room so that I could come and take the drywall out, take out all the insulation and we could begin the process of, of mold remediation, things like that. So I'm working on on something else and you know in another part of the room and all of a sudden I hear water pouring in from the ceiling which is a problem because one we're in the basement and two this basement had just flooded and so what is going on right and so I turn around and I look up and I see that the water actually isn't isn't pouring in from the ceiling but instead it's bouncing off of the ceiling because Mr. Circular saw as he got so like wrapped up in in making a straight line cut an unnecessarily straight line cut with his circular saw, as he's cutting through the, the drywall, he didn't realize he's also cutting through the studs and had cut through the water line to the bathroom in the room next door. He missed the forest for the trees. He got so focused on this thing that he missed the bigger picture. And he couldn't focus on anything else. You see, many of us wake up and we ask, the, the only questions we ask of our particular days, and therefore of our life in general as we live out those days, the, the, the thing we ask is, what am I doing today, and how am I going to do it? That's what we ask. You go to, you go to your calendar, this is what I'm doing, now how am I going to go about doing that? And so many of us don't stop to ask why. We love to figure out what we're doing, we love to figure out how we're going to do it, and very, very few times do we actually ask, why am I doing this? And that's perhaps why we often don't feel the tension of the futility of life. You go to school. Why do you go to school? To get good grades. Why do you want to get good grades? It's so that you can graduate and get a good job. Well, why do you want to get a good job? It's so you can, it's so you can make money. Well, why do you want to make money? Well, it's so that I can have a nice house and I can have a big TV and I can go on nice vacations. Well, why do you want to go on nice vacations? It's so that I can relax from my job that I work so hard at making money. Well, why do you want to go on nice vacations? Well, so that, that way I can be rested to go back to my job. And, what? and, and so that I can pay for my kids to have a good education. Why do you want them to have a good education? So they can get good grades. Why do they get good grades? So they can get a good job. So they, can get a, so they can make money. So they can go on vacations and rest from their job. Do you see what I mean? If, when you say it like that, you go, wow, that sounds really lame, right? That sounds like, like a, a, a hamster in a wheel. Like, a lot of movement going nowhere. Or maybe for you, you go, well, that, that sounds like an incredibly selfish life. I'm not, I'm not like so concerned about, you know, making money or spending my time on, nice, on like a nice life. I'm, I'm really focused on like changing the world, right? You know, I want to give myself for the good of others and for the good of our world and the good of our society. But you still need to pull on that thread, right? <laughs> you still have to ask the question, why do you want to make the world a better place? 
Why do you, especially for, for those who would say that this world is all that there is, that this life is all that there is, and yet I want to make the world a better place, you have to go, why in the world would you want to make the world a better place if in the end, if in the end, a, a million years from now, the sun will get bigger, it will engulf the earth, and, and, all, and all traces of your efforts are just burned up. What? Why? Why make the world a better place? In fact, why not just simply live your life for yourself? Why not strike while the iron's hot? Why not, why not get while the getting is good? Why not wholeheartedly embrace a lifestyle of survival of the fittest? Why? Why not? Why not do that? You see, here, here's what's true, is that in order for a worldview in order for the way that you view the world and live within it, in order for that to, to work, it needs to be two things. It needs to be intellectually credible and it needs to be experientially satisfying. Intellectually credible and experientially satisfying. And the problem, the problem with a purely atheistic or a purely humanistic explanation of suffering and evil in our world is that while, while survival of the fittest may, if you just think, about, think it out, while survival of the fittest is in one sense intellectually credible, it is also simultaneously deeply experientially dissatisfying because you know that you can't actually live that way. Because you know that to live that way has deep implications for the rest of your life. Because for most people, unless, unless, you're, unless you're psychopathic, and I mean that in like the most technical sense of the word, for most people, if you believe that this life is all that there is, what will inevitably happen is that how you actually live your life will be totally inconsistent with that view. Because if this, if this life is all that there is, then it would make all the sense in the world for you to trample on everybody else to capitalize on the short life that you have and the experience and the enjoyment that you have in it. Now, Richard Dawkins is, in, is, is who many of you probably recognize that name, world-renowned atheist, incredibly smart guy. He, Richard Dawkins is refreshingly honest refreshingly honest in this regard. In his book, River Out of Eden, he says this. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replications, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. You see, what, what Dawkins has the intellectual honesty to do is to admit that if this life is all that there is, then there is no good, there is no bad, there is no injustice, there is no justice, that everything in life is survival of the fittest, and in the end, nothing matters. What he's essentially saying is what our teacher says here in chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who knows what is good? 
If this life is all that there is, and things often end up being backwards, wise people die young, foolish people live a long life, wise people can end up poor, foolish people can end up rich, evil people live a long time, righteous people die super soon. If it's all temporary and random, then who's to say what's right and wrong? I mean, Dawkins and the teacher at this point would probably really agree with one another. But to say that the answer to this question is that there is no such thing as right and wrong, who's to say? Well, no one can say, so therefore there is no right and wrong. There is no justice or injustice. There is no righteousness and evil. To say that, you know, you know, all of us in here, deep down in our heart of hearts, know that we actually can't live that way. Maybe we can convince our minds that that's the way that, that that's the way that things are, but we cannot convince our hands to actually live that way. Because we know that that is experientially dissatisfying and that you cannot still be a, a flourishing human and you cannot still have a flourishing society if you actually live that out. And because of that, because of this, when suffering and evil causes you to take a step back and consider the meaning of life, when you don't have answers to the terrible things that happen, you will end up feeling the frustrations of futility that our teacher feels in our passage. This is the essence of chapter 8, verse 17, the, the last part of the passage that Leah read for us. When he says this, he said, I observed all the work of God, I observed all the work of God and concluded that a person is unable to discover the work that is done under the sun. I've observed everything, and here's my conclusion. You can't figure any of this out. Even though a person labors hard to explore it, he cannot find it. Even if a wise person claims to know it, he is unable to discover it. He couldn't figure it out. Why, God, why, as I look around at this world and see all the injustice Everything's backwards. I cannot figure out what's going on. And because I can't find a reason for it, there therefore must not be a reason for it. Now, do you see what's happening here? If your happiness and your contentment are directly connected to your ability to figure everything out, what our teacher is showing us this morning is that if, if your happiness and your contentment are directly connected on your ability to figure everything out and find a reason for everything, you will eventually be crushed by the presence of injustice or the experience of unexplained suffering. Because here's the teacher. We said in week one, he, he's the wisest among everyone. He knew if, if anyone would be able to figure it out, it would be him. And yet here's what he's saying. He's saying, I looked at everything and I couldn't figure it out. And because he couldn't figure it out and he connected his happiness and contentment to his ability to find a reason, he comes to the conclusion that we all will. And that because I can't figure it out, it must be futile. And you'll be crushed by the presence of injustice or the experience of unexplained suffering. And so our question this morning is since he couldn't figure it out, we certainly won't be able to find a reason for everything that happens in our world and everything that happens in your life. 
So what should we do? Do we just need to live our lives constantly frustrated? How do we fight against the inevitable frustrations of futility that come from unexplained suffering, unexplained evil, unexplained injustice? Well, what I want to show you is I want to, I want to contrast the frustration of futility in Ecclesiastes 6 and 8 with what the psalmist actually says in Psalm chapter 73. So if you have a Bible, flip over to Psalm 73. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. But look at this contrast. Okay, Psalm 73. Let's just walk through this. Notice something right away. So Psalm 73, verse one. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. So where does the psalmist begin? Where does the psalmist begin? The psalmist begins with God. Where does the teacher begin? With himself. Psalmist begins with God. Teacher begins with himself. And then from, chapter, from verse 2 to verse 12, look at this. So God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well-fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, as people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words, the wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. What is he saying? The psalmist here is basically making the same assessment as the teacher in Ecclesiastes, isn't he? Starts with God and then goes, look at all this evil and injustice. Look at them. Look at the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. So he makes the same assessment. And then verse 13, he turns to himself, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. So what's he saying? He's saying, was this all for nothing? And then verse 16, when I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless. You'd almost go, did this guy write Ecclesiastes? But then look at verse 17. The sentence doesn't end there. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until, until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, step away by, swept away by terrors. Like one walking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. When, when I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. 
I was an unthinking animal toward you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. Do you see what the psalmist is doing? The psalmist is making nearly the exact same assessments that the teacher in Ecclesiastes is making. But notice that while the teacher's assessment ends with futility, the psalmist's assessment ends with hope. Why? It's because while the teacher looks at the world and assesses God according to his assessment of the world, the psalmist looks at God and assesses the world based on his understanding of God. The teacher and the psalmist have two completely different starting places. Similar assessments, but, their start, but because their starting place is so different, their conclusion is also so different. The teacher begins with himself, his own assessment, and then turns and goes, I can't figure out what God is doing. The psalmist begins with, here's who God is. Here's what I know to be true of God. Here's everything that's wrong with our world. But because I'm looking at everything that's wrong in our world through my understanding of who God is, I can actually have hope and not walk in futility and discouragement. While the teacher says, I can't find a reason for this, therefore there must not be a reason. The psalmist says, I can't find a reason for this. But while I can't see the reasons, I'm trusting in the God who perhaps has reasons that I don't have the wisdom or the ability to see. Like, I don't need to figure out how or why everything is happening. I don't need to know the reason for everything. I need to know the God who knows the reasons for everything. You see, to say that suffering or injustice, either in your life or in our world, is futile assumes that we are able to see the whole picture, that it assumes that we are able to see the beginning to the end, to be able to say, to look at a situation like Mark Sluka would and go, because I can't see a reason, therefore there is no reason. It assumes that we have the perspective to see the whole picture. It assumes that we are God. I mentioned this illustration before, but it's just, it is branded into my memory where Elizabeth Elliot tells a story of visiting her friend who was a Welsh sheep farmer. And every year her friend would have to take his sheep and plunge them into a vat of antiseptic, head to toe. Because if he wouldn't do this, there are parasites that apparently live within their, that live on their skin, that if he doesn't plunge them head to toe all the way in this vat of antiseptic, they'll eventually get eaten away and die. And she says this, as she watched him plunge them all the way under, she says, one by one, John sees the animals, 
They would, struggle, they would struggle to climb out the side, and Mac, the sheepdog, would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp, John the farmer would catch them, spin them around, and force them under, holding them, ears, eyes, and nose, submerged for a few seconds. And as their lord and master was pushing their head under, drowning them for at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What in the world is God doing? Could it be that perhaps the reason that we struggle so often with not having the answers to everything is because we don't recognize that the gap in wisdom between God and us is infinitely greater than the gap in wisdom between a sheep and its shepherd. That the distance between the wisdom of a sheep and the wisdom of a shepherd is minuscule compared to the distance between our wisdom and God's. Maybe you've heard Romans 8.28, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And sometimes we have a hard time reconciling that with our actual lived experience, right? And part of the reason is because we actually misremember the verse. Because here, here, here's the way that perhaps we'll quote it in our, to ourselves or to each other. We'll say, well, God works everything for the good of those who love him. It's like, that's not exactly what it says. Close, but we're missing a key word. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, why does that matter? That matters because what that verse isn't saying it is, is it isn't saying that everything is good. What it's saying is that God, like a master baker, is working all things together for good. That doesn't mean every single thing is good. Perhaps you bake cookies and you go, do I just want to eat a spoonful of baking soda? Probably not. I wouldn't suggest it. That'd be terrible. A spoonful of salt? Nope. Spoonful of sugar? Maybe. Probably. A spoonful of flour? No. Like the individual ingredients in the cookies that maybe you'll make this afternoon by themselves may not be good. Some of them are. Many of them aren't. But when they're worked together, when the good ingredients and the seemingly bad ingredients are worked together, they bring about something that together is very, very good. In fact, you actually need those ingredients that aren't good by themselves in order for the cookie to be good, right? You say, well, baking soda isn't good by itself, therefore leave out the baking soda. Well, your cookies are gonna be a little too flat. You know, flour is not good by itself, makes your mouth very dry, like leave it out. It's like, it's gonna be a mess. Nothing's gonna stick together, right? No butter? Butter's good by itself. I'll give you that. <laughs> In moderation, I suppose. But no butter? Like, they're going to be too dry. 
If God is so good, why does he allow suffering? And if God is so powerful, why doesn't he do anything to stop it? Could it be that it's because he's doing something that you can't see? Could it be that he's doing something that you may not actually be able to see in your lifetime? Could it be that your lifetime of suffering, some of you have been suffering for decades. Some of you deal with chronic pain. Some of you deal with mental illness. There's a variety of things that perhaps you may be walking through that you actually can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Could it be that your lifetime of unexplained suffering is contributing to a greater picture is a piece, is one color of a greater picture that you may actually not see come to completion in your lifetime. But could it be that your lifetime of suffering is doing something so much greater than a lifetime of comfort could ever accomplish? How can we know that God is like this? How can we know that God can and that God does take even the greatest evils and the worst injustices and bring them out to a greater good that we would have never expected? How can we know this? It's because 2,000 years ago, when humanity killed the infinitely valuable Son of God, Jesus Christ, God took the greatest evil, God took this great injustice, this great wrong, and made it the pathway for our salvation. That when Pilate and Herod and the soldiers and the crowd and all the forces of hell itself thought that they were victorious in the death of Christ on the cross, little did they know that God was orchestrating their great evil into our great good. Little did they know that the horror of the cross was the necessary pathway to the triumph of our salvation. And if God can and does govern even the worst evil, God can and does govern all things in your life and in our world according to the purposes of his will. Friends, just because you don't see a reason, just because you don't see a reason for what happens in your life or what happens in our world doesn't mean there isn't a reason. It simply means that we aren't God. What do we do in the face of evil? What do we do in the face of injustice? What do we do in the face of suffering? Look to the one whose suffering and experience of evil and injustice resulted in your salvation. So the question for us as we look around at our world, the question for us perhaps today is as you look at your own life, is not how does this circumstance affect the way that I view God? The question is what do I know to be true of God and how should that affect the way I look at this circumstance? And when we approach life this way, we won't end up concluding that everything is futile, but instead, when we approach life this way, we can join the psalmist in saying that though I don't understand everything that happens, though I don't understand the reason for everything, we can join him in saying, though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart.
Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's so easy in some ways to say all these things. And yet it's often so incredibly difficult to live them. To live in the experience, to live in the reality that though I can't see a reason, that though I don't understand, I must trust in the God of the reasons. I must trust in the one who knows all things. So easy to say, so hard to live. Father, this morning we pray for the strength by your spirit to be reminded once again, over and over and over again, as we look at our life and as we look at our world, that though we don't understand many things, here is what we know to be true of you, that you are good and that you work all things together for our good and for your glorious purposes. Help us to trust you. We pray for the strength to move forward and to walk in joy. Pray this in Jesus' name. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.